This morning begins about a 26-week study. Now, it's going to take us much longer than that uh, as we celebrate Easter and any other number of things. But it's about a 26-week study as I've broken it out to complete uh, the book of 1 Peter. Now, 1 Peter, as, as I've looked at it and I've read and I've, I've been thinking about this for some time now, how we would break this out, why it's an appropriate book for us to study, and, 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 and really even just the authorship of 1 Peter and who Peter was and the things he went through. It's an incredibly instructive account for redemption, the work God worked in his heart. It's an incredibly timely letter as we find out about the things that this group of folks are going through. It's an incredibly timely letter. We look around, we see the ways that our culture is moving. It's, it's, it's a letter written to cultural exiles, and, and so too we find ourselves. It's a letter written to cultural exiles, people who find themselves on the fringe of culture, not because of overt imperial persecution, but just because of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and so we recognize that, and we see that in our own lives. And so as we journey through that, we're going to be finding direct application that spans the centuries. And that's the goodness and the grace of God to us this morning as we see this letter that the Apostle Peter wrote. Let me read the first two verses and then we'll journey through together. It opens up in verse 1 and says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And we pray the same. Notice how it opens up. Peter begins this, and, and the interesting thing as we look at this letter is we are most comfortable, most familiar with going through Pauline letters. First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Like this is kind of our bread and butter. This is, this is where we find our formulaic expressions. This is where we understand things. And so we know Paul kind of intrinsically in our hearts. But as we come to Peter, we see it and we say, ah, that's cute. You wrote a couple things. I appreciate that. Thanks for making a contribution. But Peter presents us a wonderful, beautiful picture of redemption. Maybe you didn't grow up in church. Maybe you've not heard the stories about Peter's life. But Peter, uh, for me anyway, like he's the guy that I can find parity with. He's the guy that I can, that can find some type of commonality with. I understand Peter. Say things I don't mean. I say things I regret. I'm not very good with a sword. I mean, with Peter, I find a lot of commonality. That's a more advanced Bible joke, the sword thing. Pick that up next semester. Peter. In John 1.42, Jesus renames him. He changes his name from Simon to Peter. He says, this is going to be your name. It's Cephas in Aramaic, but it's Petros, or Peter, meaning the rock. And that's the name that Jesus gives him, and it's the name that sticks. That's the name that, that carries through over the course of his ministry. Peter is this incredibly strong-willed guy. Jesus posed the questions to the disciples. He said, who do you say that I am? What did Peter say? He said, you are the Christ. What's the next thing Peter did? He said, no, we can't go and put you in jeopardy. Peter, he knew oftentimes the right thing to say, but sometimes he got too far ahead of himself. In John chapter 13, Jesus begins to meet with the disciples. He tells them those things that are going to happen to him, that he's got to be handed over, that he will suffer. What's Peter's word to him? 
Jesus, I will go with you even to the point of death. Jesus gives Peter the, Peter the unfortunate reality that, in fact, Peter would deny Jesus three times before the rooster would crow. So he's, he's conflicted, he's got this reality, and he's struggling with it. And in fact, we recognize that every time Peter has an opportunity to testify to his identification with Jesus following the Last Supper, what does he do? I don't know him. Jesus? Oh, I thought you said Jesus. Yes. He, he has repeated opportunities, in fact, three, to identify with Jesus. And they say, hey, look, you're with this guy, Jesus. And Peter's response is, who'd you say again? <laughs> no, that's my twin. I don't even like that guy. I mean, he wants everything in him to identify with someone other than Jesus. And so he denies Jesus three times. Sees Jesus hanging on the cross. Sees the empty tomb. He's reunited with Jesus. And one of the interesting things about Peter is we find him at the end of the Gospel of John in John chapter 21. Peter denied Jesus three times. Three times in John 21, Jesus restores Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know I love you. He says, tend my sheep. Three times. Three times Jesus reminds Peter of his love for him and Peter's love for Jesus in an effort to restore each time of denial. I understand Peter. Peter's life is a beautiful, wonderful picture of redemption. And if you're a believer in faith in Jesus Christ, Peter's life and its story is likely your story as well. We were far off and he redeemed us. He called us. He made us his own. We were in darkness and he brought us to dwell in light, to be in communion with him. Amen? Amen. This is the man that writes this letter. He describes himself. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is not only a witness to the risen Christ, but he is sent out by Jesus for an express purpose, an express mission. Now, the letter he writes here is a cyclical letter, and we see that in this next deal. Look where he goes to. He goes to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. It's a cyclical letter. It's in modern-day Turkey, and so it starts on the coast. It wraps around, and it comes back around to the coast again. Some 300,000 square miles are covered in the churches represented in this, in this area. And so it's quite a large area. Peter's writing to them. He's seeking to build them up. And one of the things we know, and you'll see as we go through the course of this letter, is he's likely writing to a Gentile audience. He's likely writing to a Gentile audience. But he's appropriating, bringing in decidedly Jewish characteristics and applying that to them. And so in some way, he's doing the same thing Paul did in the book of Ephesus. In the book of uh, Ephesians, the letter written to the church in Ephesus. That was difficult to think and say all at the same time and walk. Good night. I'm glad I wasn't chewing gum. I would have fallen. And so Paul writes to that church. He talks about how there were two groups, and he's, he has made them one. He's made them one in Jesus Christ. And effectively, he's appropriating Jewish identity and bringing that to bear on this new Christian church. Peter does the same thing in a slightly different way, in a different nuance. Now look how he addresses those he writes to. We know where they are. We know he's writing to this group of churches. So he writes to this incredibly diverse group of people. And he characterizes them, he describes them with one thing. You are elect exiles. You're elect exiles. 
Peter writes to this group of people who were feeling pressure, not from a magisterial perspective, not from the empire, but they're feeling pressure from those around them. They were different from their neighbors. They were different from their co-workers. Some of them, they were different from their spouses. And this difference centered on their identification with Jesus. Peter calls them to recognize they are elect exiles. God has sovereignly moved to call them to salvation. He has elected them. You remember when we did our study in Genesis chapter 12, God spoke to Abraham. And what did he do? He called him. He chose him. It's the same language. It's the same descriptor used here. If you are a believer in faith in Jesus Christ, God has in the very same sense elected you. He has called you out from what you used to be. And he has set you to be something decidedly different. And on the basis of God's election, on the basis of his sovereign choice of you, he's called you from your former way of existence. And in doing that, he has made you a pilgrim, a sojourner, and an exile. All three things are encapsulated in this one word, exile. Depending on which translation you have, you're going to find it met out in different ways. You're a sojourner. You're someone traveling through a land. This is not your home should cause us to amen. This is not our home. The sickness we see, the depravity that's all around us, the the corrosive and decaying impact of our society around us, this is not our home. So he comes to a group of people who see mass atrocities all around them. He comes to a group of people who see idol worship. He comes to a group of people who see their neighbors worship the empire. He comes to a group of people who see all of these things, debauchery, drunkenness, exhilarated and lived up and highly exalted and said, this is what we want to be. We see that all around them. And they're asking the question, is something wrong with me? Why can I not find home here? Why does this feel wrong? Why does this feel different? And Peter's words to them is because of God's choosing you. God has chosen you, and as such, you are an exile. This is a difficult thing for us. We want to feel at home. I want to feel normal. I want to feel embraced. I want to go out in society and not feel awkward. Some of you are looking at me and saying, good luck with that. You're just an awkward guy. I got news for you. If you don't know your own awkwardness, that's an indication that you're awkward. You're still processing that. But he writes to them. And he really wants them to understand that the awkwardness they feel in community, outside of their Christian brothers and sisters, is on the basis of God's choosing of them. Your identification with Jesus is going to make you awkward in the world. Your identification with Jesus is going to make you feel awkward in the world, and there's a chance that it's going to make people around you feel awkward. If you live out a vibrant expression of faith in Jesus Christ that knows and believes that the only way to be saved is identification with the sacrifice of Jesus, and you're telling people about that, and it's impacting the way that you live, you're going to feel awkward. And you're going to feel this this feeling of exile, this feeling of what it is to be a pilgrim in a foreign land, and it's going to be real for you. When I first started seminary, 
I was uh, working at a, at a truck shop in Houston. And it, it was this really incredibly weird thing. And so I go to church on Sunday, and everybody's, amen, brother. We love you. Hallelujah. Praise the Lamb. I mean, it, it kind of bringing in this vernacular and all these words. And I was like, hallelujah. Absolutely. You know, singing whatever songs. And, and then I go to work on Monday, and it was like, bleep, 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 mother, bleep, bleep. And I'm just like, my ears are bleeding. And I'm just like, hallelujah, praise the Lord. What? What is that? Like 12 hours ago, I was there. I recognize I was living as a pilgrim, a sojourner. So I'm seeking to be light in this incredibly dark place. And I remember this, and I might have told some of you the story. I remember this one uh, account where I was running a forklift and I had an electrician. I was lifting him up and he's changing the photo cells on these Dawn to Dust lights. And I'm just, you know, I mean, it's pretty boring. I got my foot on the brake and I'm thinking, this would be really funny if I threw it in reverse. And he was like, ah! But anyway, so I got my foot on the brake and I, it, it's up. He's working for a little while. It's down. It's move over. It's up. He's working for a little while. It's down. And we're just talking. And he's like, so what are you, what are you doing here? I was like, well, you know, I graduated college, worked as a youth pastor, now I'm, now I'm working in this truck shop. I'm going to seminary. He said, seminary, what? I said, well, seminary. I feel the call of God on my life to go to pastor. And he's like, oh, I'm a Christian. It's really, this is fascinating. And so we talked for a little while. And then the mechanic that I reported to came out. Now, Tony is a hard man. I mean, not just like muscle hard. He's that too, but he is hard. He looks at cotton candy and it cries. I mean, he is a hard he is a hard man. And so Tony came out. He is, I mean, just a foul-mouthed guy. He grew up in a gang. He had stab wounds all over his body. He's a hard man. He's tatted up. His eyelids, his eyelids inside and outside are tatted, likely. And so Tony comes out, and he's like, when are you going to get back to blankety-blank work? And, and uh, that electrician happened to be on the ground. He's like, you don't need to talk to him that way. This is a man of God. This is a guy who has submitted himself to the call of God upon his life, and is pursuing that. You don't need to talk to him like that. And I'm just like, you know. <laughs> and inside I'm thinking, you have no idea what can of worms you just can from me. Why would you do that? Tony's response was perfect. He said, I've been talking this way for a blankety-blank long time. If he can't blankety-blank handle it, then he needs to find another blankety-blank job. Now you get back up there and fix that light so you can get back to work. I was living as a sojourner and a pilgrim. It was so incredibly evident every time I went to work, every time I went into the marketplace. But then I come back together with our faith family, and it gives this impression when you're in church that everything out there just kind of melts away. And we forget we have a tendency to forget. As we come in here, as we worship, and our hearts are surrendering to God, we should be forgetting the effects of that out there. Being built up and poured into in here so that when we go back out there, we can make a difference. But that feeling of being a sojourner, that feeling of being a pilgrim, is something that God has designed. His choosing of you has made you this. It's incredibly important we recognize the goodness, the graciousness of God in making us pilgrims and exiles in a variety of places, in the workplace, at school, some of us in our families, some of us in the marketplace. We seek to love everybody we come into contact with. Don't exacerbate your awkwardness. Some of you don't need help with that. Let the awkwardness that you exude be that which stems from the gospel and not what you seek to make it in your manifestation. Does that make sense to you? 
It is our identification with Jesus that makes us exiles. To those who are elect exiles in the dispersion. And look what he goes on to do. This is incredibly formational for the entire book. Peter founds our position as elect pilgrim sojourners and exiles in the Trinity. Now, I was, I was having a conversation with a guy earlier this week about, about Trinity, and, I, and I've talked to my Bible study on Wednesday nights about Trinity, and it's one of these things, everybody says, oh, I've got this great, have you heard the analogy of thus and so? Because I know everything you say is going to be heresy, but, but Matt, have you heard this one? Because this one really brings in the Trinity, And so they say it's the egg, it's the shell, it's the yolk, it's the white. They say it's water, it's liquid, it's it's vapor, and it's ice. Can I tell you, all those things are going to break down and are, in fact, heresy. Don't say them anymore. Just don't. Do yourself a favor and do me a favor. Don't say them. If you do, put a different church's bumper sticker on your car before you do. They're heresy. They break down. Water. Water does not exist as vapor, water, and ice at the same time. That's modalism. He would have to change from being the Son to being the Spirit to being God the Father. He exists as all three from eternity past and on to eternity future. Does that make sense to you? He is all three. He is all three at all times. They all have equal majesty, equal value. The difference is in function. There is uh, the idea of functional subordination in the Trinity. What the Father says, the Son does. What the Son says, the Spirit does. What the Spirit brings about is the will of the Father. There is functional subordination, but there is an equality in the Trinity. It's mystery. It's mystery. We recognize the Trinity is mystery and God should be worshipped as being mysterious. Not this thing that we seek to boil down and understand and say, hey look, it fits in the snow globe. It's mystery. And Peter relates that triadic formula, this, this description of the Trinity to us. To the recipients of his letter. And look how he does that. He starts off and he says that you are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so he applies our salvation as coming from the foreknowledge of God that God knew beforehand, as we studied in Ephesians, before the very foundations of the earth, God called us to come into life with him. And where is the, where is the locus? Where do we find our salvation? Where do we find our salvation? Well, when you look over just probably on the same page within the book of 1 Peter, look what he says here in 120. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The foreknowledge of God is captivated in the person of Jesus. And our salvation is situated therein. Our salvation is firmly in the person of Jesus Christ and nowhere else. Our salvation from all eternity past is captivated and held within the person of Jesus Christ. We saw this all in Ephesians chapter 1. Everything that happens in terms of salvation happens in the person and the sacrifice of Jesus. Amen? And the foreknowledge of God finds us resting in Jesus. 
in terms of applying this economy of the Trinity to our, our salvation, we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What a sweet grace that we are able to relate to an all-powerful, all-knowing God as Father. Some of us have terrible relationships with our fathers. So every time you read of God being the Father, you're, you're, you're wrangling because your only identification with the Father is this man who was uh, an alcoholic, who was abusive, who didn't love you the way that you presumed that you should be loved. All of those issues are outside of the text. When we relate, when we see God as Father within the pages of the Bible, we're relating to all the perfections of what a father should be. It's all loving. It's all gracious. And you are captivated, you are within Jesus in the foreknowledge of God from eternity past. And it's on the basis of his foreknowledge that you are an elect exile. Look what he says next. He says that you are an elect exile in the sanctification of the Spirit. The sanctification of the Spirit has also made you an elect exile. This fact that God has made you holy. Now, when we talk in terms of sanctification, we recognize we're talking in in two things. Some places in Scripture you look through and you see it talk about sanctification. It's this positional, God has made you holy. So when God moved in Tom's life and called him to salvation, he has reckoned Tom as holy. Positional sanctification. Now over the course of Tom's life, he's going to quit kicking cats, he's going to quit robbing banks, and so God is stripping away, I'm trying to think of things Tom doesn't do anymore, and so he's pulling away these things that were true and evident in Tom's life. He is making him holy. In essence, he's making him out to be the reality of what he's declared him to be. Do you see how that works? He declares him to be holy, and then he's shifting the course of his life to make him so. In terms of being forgiven before God, being righteous before God, he is declared as holy, forgiven. But over the course of his life, the trajectory therein, God is making him holy. Paul talks about this a little bit in Romans 6. Let me, let me direct you just to a couple of verses. Romans 6, verse 19 and verse 22. Paul's talking about what it is to be slaves to righteousness. Verse 19, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, he said, look, you were lost, you liked it, you imbibed it, you couldn't get enough of it, And the more sinful you were, the more sinful you became. And this is what you formerly were. You were slaves to your former way of existence. You had no will outside of being lost. This is who you were. He says, just as this is how you were, so now you need to change. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. God in his foreknowledge saves you. He elects you. God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, he sanctifies you. He's made you holy. But there's also this call of naturally imposing upon yourself certain restrictions. Why? Not the merit, the favor, and the love of God. Those things are already yours in Jesus. Legalism 
Legalism is looking at God and saying, can you give me a list of things that would make you love me more? Legalism is taking a list of things to do and to not do and saying, would these things make you love me? No, absolutely not. Friends, if the reason you obey is to secure the love of God, then you know nothing of the love of God. The love of God is brought to you, is bestowed on you solely in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You can never, never merit the forgiveness of God. Only Jesus can do that. This is why you have to be in the bosom of Jesus, foreknown before the foundation of the world, that in the foreknowledge of God, he might elect you to be in exile. Your identification with Jesus is what makes you holy and forgiven. But over the course of your life, he's calling you to live out to demonstrate the implications of your salvation. Verse 22 in Romans 6. But now you've been set free from sin. You've been set free from sin. This is great news. You are no longer held captive by sin. You're no longer held captive by sin. You've been set free. Listen to this. And have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. God has set it up in such a way that when he sets you free from sin, he brings you into this gracious bondage of his love. This is what Paul is describing here. The gracious bondage of the love of God. This relationship is firmly founded in the love of God and as such, you can never violate it, walk away from it. God has surely saved you and saved you, as Scripture tells us, to the uttermost, giving us the indication, the the very true thing, that we can never find ourselves outside the love of God once we have received his salvation. This is great news. This is great news. This finds us in the middle of our backsliding. This finds us in the middle of our difficulty. And what does it say to us? It says to us that we are never outside the love of God, but he is calling us always to obedience. It can't be one pole or the other. We find ourselves often backslidden. In the midst of that, we need to remind ourselves of the forgiveness of God. Not our failure before him. It's not the the spiritual guilt trip that that finds us sleeping with our girlfriend or looking at pornography or cheating on our wife or or cheating on our taxes or lying on our cards or, or doing all these things or skipping church or whatever it is. It is not the spiritual guilt trip that brings us back to God. It's his grace and mercy. It's his grace and mercy. It's his love for you. He loves you. He's foreknown you from before the foundations of the world in the bosom of Jesus. He's made you holy by the power of his spirit. Look what he says next. You are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ in this compound idea of and for the sprinkling with his blood. Obedience to Jesus. And what he's getting at there isn't going through and reading all the Gospels and trying to find out all the things Jesus said and doing it or going out and buying 15 of those WWJD bracelets and when you don't do the thing, you pop it and you just work the way down. You've got giant whelps on your arm. Somebody says, what are those whelps for? You're like, I can't do what Jesus did. That's not it. And that's not going to help you be obedient. That's not going to help you walk a vibrant uh, Christian life. 
what he's talking about here is submission to the gospel. Submission to the gospel. This obedience to Jesus Christ is finding yourselves in submission to the gospel. The gospel as it is and as it has been presented to you, that there is an all-powerful creator God who made you. He made you to know him. He created you in his likeness and in his image. And that you, with all humanity, fell. You walked away from him. That all humanity is, is separated, mired in sin. But you too personally have sinned against a holy God. You violated his, his character. You violated his precepts. You have walked away from this holy God. But in love, he sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice from you. He sent his son and he poured out the wrath that should have come to you. He poured it out on Jesus. Jesus willingly did that. He surrendered himself to the Father. He surrendered his will to the Father. He took on sin and death for you. And he overcame them so that you might be reunited with God. This is good news to the sinner and the saint. To the saint, it's a reminder that there is nothing they can do to earn the love of God. To the sinner, it is an indication of the great love of God for them, that even though they were far off, God had been moving to reconcile them, to bring them into communion with him, and in communion, forgiveness. Amen? This obedience to Jesus, this gospel, as it's been richly applied to our lives, calls upon us to live lives in full submission to the implications of the gospel. So all those things, when it comes to forgiveness, we're able to forgive, and why? Because we've been forgiven much. We're able to be gracious, why? Because we've been dealt graciously with. God is calling upon us to apply the gospel richly to our lives, to submit ourselves to all of the implications of the gospel. And it's difficult. It's a hard reality for us to accept that forgiveness and to walk out the implications of it and to dole out that forgiveness to those who, who sin against us, who violate our systems of right and wrong. But that's what he calls us to. You're an elect exile. You're a pilgrim in this community, Hunt County, Dallas, Texas, wherever it is you work, wherever it is you live, you are a pilgrim there because of the will and the work of God. And as a pilgrim there, you are to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other option for you. There's no other option for you. Christianity is not a choose-your-own-adventure story whereby you get to pick the way it ends. Christianity is God redeeming you and calling you to be a slave to righteousness. You belong to him. Your life is his. He has redeemed it. He has brought it back. Obedience to Jesus. And he uses this incredibly rich imagery here. He says, you're an elect exile for obedience to Jesus, and you're an elect exile for sprinkling with his blood. Now, Clearly, he's pointing at the picture of the blood of Jesus poured out for what? For the remission of sins. For the forgiveness of sins that sin might be done away with. This is why Jesus' blood was poured out. But he's pulling on this imagery that's found in Exodus 24. Don't turn, or Deuteronomy 24. No, it's, it's Exodus. I just wrote Deuteronomy. And in Exodus 24, Moses has brought all of Israel out of Egypt. They're headed towards the promised land. And God has been giving him the law. He's been giving him his instruction. 
And in Exodus 24, starting in verse 3, it says, Moses came, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. They found themselves giving allegiance to the word of God. They found themselves indicating that, look, everything we've heard, everything you said we need to do, we're going to do those things. We're going to be those things. And again in verse 7, Moses came and he read from the book of the covenant. He read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Hear the word of the Lord go out through Moses. And the reflection upon that is a call to obedience. It's a call to submit themselves to the power of the gospel. We will be obedient. Look here in verse 8. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. When he does that, when he takes the bloods of the bull and he, he sprinkles it on the people, it's demonstrating for them the covering that sacrifice affords them. The covering that sacrifice affords them. The covering that the sacrifice of Jesus affords us is community fellowship with God. In salvation, when you have submitted yourself in obedience to Jesus Christ and the power of his gospel, in salvation, the blood of Jesus is applied to your life. It's a sign and it's a seal of God's everlasting covenant held up in the power of the sacrifice of of Jesus Christ. He's calling us to be something. He's calling us to be something. And to these elect exiles, to these pilgrims daily going over the, the course of going to the marketplace, daily explaining to people, oh, this is why we don't sacrifice to this God, this is why we don't sacrifice to that God, this is why I don't do that, this is why I don't do this, this is why I give money to a nonprofit. this is why I go to church, this is why I don't talk this way, this is why I engage in these things, this is why I spend my vacation to go on mission trips, this is why I value the things of God instead of promotions at work. When we find ourselves in the same area, living as elect exiles, recognize this is how God has laid it up for us to be. It's not an opportunity for us to look at it and say, oh, poor pitiful me. In fact, as we go through this letter of 1 Peter, we find ourselves finding great commonality with all the men and women who came before us on all those God willing if Christ tarries who come after us. Friends, this is not our home. Things are not as they should be. But we serve a coming king who will come again to set all things true, all things right. And to these elect exiles, Peter closes with these words. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. May the grace of God, his forgiveness, find rich home in your life. May the peace of God, which can calm all the raging seas of your life, find a rest in your heart. As you're out and in the midst of community and facing incredible trials and difficulties, Peter's prayer for you and my prayer for you is that the grace of 
and peace of Jesus would be multiplied to you. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for your goodness. God, I'm so thankful that there is grace and peace to be visited upon us. That we are a people forgiven. That we are a people redeemed. And Father, I pray for those who have yet to receive the forgiveness afforded them in the person of Jesus Christ. That you would work in their heart to call them to salvation. That Christ who was foreknown before the foundation of the world would appear to them and they would be saved today, even today. Father, I pray that you would help us to richly apply the truth of this text to our lives, that you would help us as we're walking out our, our roles and vocations. All the different communities you placed us in, God, we find it incredibly difficult to be faithful. And so I pray that you would remind us of the power we have in your spirit. And Father, I pray that you would just continue to work encouragement in our hearts strengthen our souls and that you would help us to rest on one another God that if you called us to live a life in community here at Ridgecrest that we would be not those who seek to do it on our own but those who are readily leaning on the assistance and the help of those in this faith fellowship God thank you for that thank you for the grace that the church can be in our lives Thank you for this body of believers. And I pray that, God, as we turn our hearts toward application and responding to the truth that you've applied to our hearts, that your spirit would be working in our hearts even now. And we pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.